You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Emily Ashenfelter. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's June 17th. As another pandemic-era school year ends, how are America's teachers and principals doing? Results from a recent RAND survey provide some insights. The headline finding, U.S. educators are experiencing frequent job-related stress at a rate that's about twice that of the general working public. Our survey, which was conducted in January, asked about five aspects of well-being. Frequent job-related stress, ability to cope with job-related stress, burnout, symptoms of depression, and resilience to stressful events. Here are some additional takeaways. Nearly half of the teachers said that supporting students' academic learning was one of their main sources of job-related stress. Two-thirds of teachers reported taking on extra responsibilities during the pandemic, such as covering other teachers' classes or taking additional students in their own classrooms because of staff shortages. Nearly half of principals of color and one-third of teachers of color reported experiencing racial discrimination. Family members of students and fellow staff were often the source. Well-being was reported as especially poor among Hispanic Latinx teachers, mid-career teachers, and female teachers and principals. While these results paint a concerning picture, the survey also revealed some good news— Many educators appear to be managing their stress, and they're still finding joy in their work. Rand's Elizabeth Steiner, lead author of the study, said, quote, Teachers told us that their dedication to working with students kept them in their jobs, even though pandemic conditions have made teaching more challenging. Teaching conditions, not the work of teaching itself, are what they find to be stressful. With this in mind, Steiner and her co-authors identified several recommendations to help educators, such as alleviating stress by expanding tutoring programs, investing in summer school, or hiring additional staff to address student behavior and mental health concerns and provide more support in the classroom. After the recent mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, there are renewed calls for federal action that addresses gun ownership and usage, increases access to mental health care, and improves the effectiveness of law enforcement. But according to RAND experts, state governments might be best positioned to take the lead on long-term, sustainable efforts that prevent targeted violence, including mass shootings. Why is this exactly? Well, compared to the federal government, states are better equipped to understand their local communities and bring local stakeholders together to develop effective solutions. And unlike many municipalities, which have limited reach, states can marshal significant resources and funds. So, states might be well-equipped to address one of the biggest challenges in violence prevention today. Existing services did not come together in any sort of broader strategy. And, in fact, Devising a broad strategy would be key to state-based solutions aimed at preventing targeted violence. Other key considerations for states, they should focus on working directly with individuals at risk of committing violence and those who have committed violent acts in the past, as well as developing community initiatives to foster resilience and awareness. They should evaluate the data to understand what programs or initiatives 
have proven effective at preventing violence. Finally, states should take steps to ensure that their violence prevention efforts don't stigmatize marginalized communities and minority groups, or result in these groups being subject to greater surveillance. By elevating the voice of minority groups, states can help ensure that all communities benefit equally from violence prevention initiatives. Although the White House announced this week that it would send $1 billion in new military aid to Ukraine, some argue that Washington should call for Ukraine to back down in order to avoid antagonizing Moscow and potentially escalating the conflict. In other words, don't poke the bear. But according to Rand's Raphael Cohen, calling for Ukraine to back off now may not be wise. For one, it would make little military sense. It would risk giving Russia time to regroup, rearm, and renew its offensive. Calling for Ukraine to back off would also send more than one wrong message, Cohen says. First, it would signal to states like Russia that invading sovereign territory will be tolerated. Second, it would show the world that if hostile states have nukes and can threaten the global economy, the West will eventually self-deter. Third, and perhaps most importantly, it would further underscore doubts about the West's willingness to see hard tasks through to the end. This may be the key element missing in U.S. deterrence today, Cohen says. Here's how Cohen sums it up in explaining why he views don't poke the bear as an unwise strategy for dealing with Russia, given the current circumstances. Quote, When a bear is off in the wilderness or in hibernation, there is a valid argument for leaving it alone. That is simply not Russia today. Dealing with an already enraged rampaging bear requires a different strategic approach, one that might ensure that Ukraine has all the bear shot it may need. Drug dealing has been an enduring problem in San Francisco's Tenderloin District and surrounding areas, and the situation has gotten worse amid the fentanyl crisis. According to Rand's Bo Kilmer, there are ways to address this issue. To start, it's important to be transparent about what happens after someone is arrested for selling drugs or for possession with intent to distribute. For instance, how many people are spending time in jail, and for how long after such convictions? And how many individuals have had their cases dismissed? This information is essential to policy decisions. Additionally, Kilmer says it may be time to reconsider what these consequences are. Evidence suggests that swift and certain sanctions are more likely to deter someone from committing a crime than long prison sentences. Finally, each of these steps should be part of a collaborative effort between prosecutors, police, and the community. Arresting and convicting dealers without a coordinated strategy usually doesn't make a lasting difference, Kilmer says. And unannounced crackdowns can sometimes be traumatic and potentially dangerous for community members. Non-state actors such as terrorist groups and drug trafficking organizations have the capacity to wage war, inflict violence, and engage in vast transnational criminal activity. This makes them a persistent danger and a direct threat to U.S. security interests. And because these groups are quite flexible and able to adapt, countering them is a challenge. A new RAND report looks at how violent non-state actors adapt and evolve, and provides recommendations for ways the U.S. Army can prevent them from doing so. 
Notably, the authors found that most adaptations by violent non-state actors occur within the first five years of their existence. This suggests that there may be an opportunity to limit a non-state actor's ability to adapt shortly after it emerges. This may help reduce its ability to remain operationally effective. Rand is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.